The following is a true story about the making of an empire and two visionary world builders who made it possible. This is Blockbuster. Episode 5. Spring, 1963, Modesto, California. George Lucas is in his second year at Modesto Junior College studying anthropology and literature. You coming tonight, George? You bet. George has taken an interest in art house films. You couldn't see those in Modesto, so he and his friends would drive up to San Francisco for screenings. His lifelong friend John Plummer has also encouraged him to apply to the world-renowned film school at the University of Southern California. In the mail was an official-looking envelope from USC. John, look. There it is. You gonna open it or what? I am pleased to announce your admission to the University of Southern California. Oh my god, I got in. You got in? I'm in. USC was a private university, and George needed his father's help to pay the tuition. He'd get the money on one condition, that he'd treat his studies like a full-time job. But his dad still wasn't sure if there'd be a career for his son in film. I'm holding a place for you at the store, George. Dad, I don't want to run a company. I'm never coming back. George held up his end of the bargain. At USC, he'd work night and day on his studies and his student films, too. With friends like John Milius, who would later become a writer and director, Walter Murch, who would become a legendary sound designer, and a beautiful girl named Marsha Griffin, who wanted to become an editor. Did you do the 506 assignment? I can't keep up with taking so many photos. USC was an incubator of budding filmmakers, and though George didn't know it yet, he was already making his way to the top. His next student film was about a futuristic, dystopian world. It would become his calling card for decades. THX 1138. Spring 1977, Hollywood. George Lucas is 32 years old. Doctors have given a death sentence, either for him or for Star Wars. George was defiant. Well, that's gotta go. No, 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 that's gotta go. He's in his office, slashing apart the script for Star Wars, shot by shot. Now that one stays. That one was the Millennium Falcon's jump to hyperspace. That one was crucial to the film. George began spending two days a week at ILM, trying to make up lost time, and hiring help to oversee them when he couldn't be there. He became overbearing and strict. If they weren't gonna get all the shots done, they'd at least get the important ones. Cannon going boom, boom, boom. An explosion in a wall panel. John Dykstra had run the place like a free-spirited collective. That's why he and George had always gotten along. Creativity came first, but now they were out of time. I need this shot done today. George put his foot down. He felt like a jerk. These were his friends, and he was treating them like employees. They were employees. His creative vision had become a business. In some ways, he felt cold, just like his dad. But as Star Wars continued to unravel, there was no other way. Hey, Gary. Hey, George. Uh, please give me good news. In slashing scenes from the film, George had added a few new lines of dialogue. Those required some reshoots, but Fox wasn't making it easy. Well, they say 20,000 is all we get. 20,000? I can't reshoot for 20,000. We're two million over budget, George. We're tapped out. The reshoot problem got even worse after actor Mark Hamill broke his nose and cheek in a car accident. 
it made his reshoots impossible. All George would get is a few days in the California desert. He knew that was it. He'd have to make it work. Meanwhile, Steven Spielberg is also in L.A., doing test screenings for his first cut of Close Encounters of the Third Kind. The reaction is lukewarm at best. All right, wait. How did they know where the aliens were? The whole would thing about up? the nerve gas hoax. So, was, was it all supposed to be a dream? Steven was feeling the pressure once more. This time, he had a film with structural problems, not mechanical ones like on Jaws. He needed rewrites, reshoots, and money to do it. Columbia Pictures saw parallels to the troubled Star Wars picture at Fox, which had become a bit of a rival project. Steven would get his reshoots, but the film's release would push back from summer to November that year. Star Wars would get a six-month head start, and Steven worried by then there might be no audience left for Close Encounters. Spring, 1977. Brian, good to see you, pal. Nice place, George. Look at that screen. George and Marsha have invited their friends over to watch the film. I already called front row. Steven, of course you did. Hello, Brian. Alan Ladd Jr., Fox. On Marsha's advice, the new cut of the film includes a completely new version of Luke's trench run on the Death Star at the end of the film, and Han Solo swooping in with the Millennium Falcon to save the day. If people didn't cheer at that, the movie wouldn't work. They were about to find out. Oh, by the way, Marty apologizes he can't be here. He was excited to see it. It was a reunion of the movie brats. Martin Scorsese wouldn't make it, and Francis Ford Coppola was in Manila shooting Apocalypse Now. But Stephen, Brian De Palma, John Milius, writer Gloria Katz, and a couple executives from Fox, including Laddie, wouldn't miss it for the world. Hey, uh, uh, popcorn? See, this is what I'm talking about. It's all about the experience. Hey, let's go ahead with real one. Yes, sir, real one. Oh, um, so I should mention we're still missing the special effects, so I put in some World War II dogfight footage in there instead. Also, Johnny's doing this great score for the film, but um, that, 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 that's not in there either. How about the photography? Have <laughs> you shot anything yet, George? Shut up, Brian. Hey, shut up, Brian. The film opened with shaky text, a primitive, long-winded version of what would become the iconic yellow opening crawl. And the first pictures of the film itself were handwritten notes that said, huge space cruiser here. Wait, so is all that text just a placeholder? Where was this big, expensive movie? No, it's more background for the story. It was just the start of what would be a nightmare screening. The longest two hours of Georgia's life. Uh, so th this, this part will be different. And with the music, this sequence is going to be a lot more intense. Remember, a Jedi can feel the Force flowing through him. Most scenes required explanation to make sense. They're coming in. Three marks at 210. Marsha was relieved the trench run scene got a cheer from Steven. But when they got to the film's final scene, the throne room, there was total silence. No music, no sound. A strange, boring ending for an adventure movie. When the end credits rolled, no one applauded or spoke. The silence sank George deep into his chair. It was clearer now than ever. Star Wars was terrible. <clears throat> Marsha broke into tears. Not even Steven knew what to say. That bad, huh? 
I don't mean to sound harsh, but what is this shit? <laughs> Marsha leaned over to her friend Gloria sitting next to her. Oh, it's awful. Shh, there are people from the studio here. It's like the At Long Last Love of sci-fi. At Long Last Love was a musical starring Frank Sinatra, widely considered one of the worst films of all time. <laughs> Marsha's heart broke for George, who was bright red with embarrassment, slumped down in his chair. He tried to save the moment. Well, uh... At least for the Fox executives in the room. It is a kid's movie, of course. Uh, you know, Walt Disney kind of thing. It's going to do uh, eight, ten million. It's a, it's a kid's movie, you know? Yeah, it's a kid's movie, Brian, with the special effects and music. <clears throat> hey, I can see a really fun movie. It was Laddie whose opinion really mattered, and he'd been the only person at Fox that still believed in the movie. I, uh... For a moment now, it wasn't so clear. I think it's good, George. Very entertaining kids movie. It was the polite way of saying the movie wasn't what it was supposed to be. <sighs> I'm gonna take off, George. Thanks again. As the executives from Fox left, the movie brats followed tradition and went to dinner. Chinese food. George was silent in the car, silent at the restaurant, more than an hour passed before he worked up the courage to speak again. All right, what do you guys really think? George had a notepad. He sat at the table, piled high with empty dishes yet to be cleared, and begged his peers for help. This persistence had saved him before, but his friends knew it wouldn't this time. Well, George. It was Brian. Okay, the first act. Where are we? Who are the fuzzy guys? Who is this tin man from The Wizard of Oz? What kind of movie is this? We have no idea what's going on. You, you've left the audience out. Brian was relentless. Several times, George and Stephen tried to defend the story, but Brian continued. And, and what's all this, the force shit? It sounds like farts. May the farts be with you. George was still bright red and humiliated. And you gotta drop the Jedi shit. Nobody's gonna know what you're talking about. He made notes on his notepad. He saw the only way out was to figure out what he'd messed up so badly. You know, George, it's definitely rough, but I don't know that I agree with Brian. This story is great. Oh, come on, Steve. Honestly, this thing could make a hundred million dollars. <sighs> I'm serious, it has heart. People like that. You get those shots put in and Johnny's music in there, you're gonna have a hit. By the end of the night, George had his list of plot holes and problems, and after Steven's show of support, Brian offered to help fix the film and rewrite what would become the iconic opening crawl. Anvil Studios, England, a few miles away from London, it was a recording stage for music used by some of the celebrated composers of the last decade. Bernard Herrmann for Vertigo, Jerry Goldsmith for The Omen. The walls of this great big room had history. And John Williams was about to record with the London Symphony Orchestra for the first time. George was in a smaller room, the control room, separated by soundproof glass. In front of him, an enormous mixing board and his sound crew. George, how was the flight? That was Lionel Newman, the head of music for Fox. He'd made the trip from Los Angeles along with George and, of course, John Williams, who they could see standing at the podium on the other side of the glass. We, we didn't have a score on American Graffiti. 
I'm not, I'm not sure what to expect. Are you in for a treat? John wore a black turtleneck and reading glasses, carefully scanning the sheet music before they begin recording with the orchestra. On the wall of this enormous stage is a projected image of Luke Skywalker, 34 feet across. In front of the screen is a semicircle of fine wood and brass instruments, all lined up facing John at the podium. If we're ready, shall we begin? It was John over the intercom. Uh, all the levels are set. Ready when you are, George. May the force be with us. John grasped the baton and held it up vertically as if casting a musical spell over the orchestra. One and two and. It's the greatest music anyone in that control room has ever heard. They can't believe the only thing between them and the magic being played by the London Symphony Orchestra is just a pane of glass. Steven. George fumbles to dial out to Stephen in Los Angeles. Can you get Stephen on the phone? It's urgent. George, what do you think? Johnny, it's brilliant. It's already the best part of the movie. Ladies and gentlemen of the London Symphony Orchestra, welcome to Star Wars. As John conducted, George watched the film play on the screen above. It was dazzling. The images sparkled with life, more vibrant than they'd ever been before. George, I've got Steven on the line. Steve, you were right about Johnny. Listen to this. George holds up the phone so Steven can hear the music. Stephen listened for half an hour, an international long-distance call that would cost the studio nearly $600. John's baton held an astonishing command over the orchestra for a recording that would be considered among the greatest musical works of all time. The cast, who were still in London, had heard the buzz about John's score. They had to hear this. Many of them had come in, now huddled in a cramped control room with George. Amazing. Carrie Fisher was moved to tears.
They all held their breath as John conducted the final cue. George walked out to give a big hug to his composer, who was now visibly weary from hours of emotional conducting. Johnny, come here. Oh. It took John by surprise. Was it all right? Johnny, it was... I'm speechless. It was the only thing that had gone right. And boy, was it right. Stephen would later admit he was worried he'd never hear something so wonderful as that music. George had brought up the very best of John Williams to save Star Wars. George left London on top of the world. On the flight to Los Angeles, he fantasized about the future of Star Wars. Could it still make the splash Jaws did after all this trouble? A thousand movie theaters, lines around the block. He'd have 12 hours on a plane to think about it and was still worried the music might have come too late. George was back in the warm California sun. As he rushed his teams to finish the special effects shots and the sound mix, he got a note from Alan Ladd Jr. at Fox. And what's this? He just said to call him back when you have a minute. <clears throat> Hey, Laddie. I don't want to sugarcoat it. A lot of local theaters aren't sure about the film. We're not getting the numbers we thought we'd get. Well, how many theaters do we have? Well, I... It's not good, George. Laddie, how many? About 30. Laddie could almost feel George's dismay through the phone. <sighs> okay. We're going to keep working on it, George. But we had an idea. The movie comes out on Memorial Day weekend, and... They're thinking we might be able to get a little word of mouth if we release it a few days early on Wednesday. It was unusual, but a move Laddie said might help the opening weekend numbers, especially for a limited release. Well, won't that look desperate? Well, George... Theaters had no interest in Star Wars. They thought it looked silly and wouldn't make money. In fact, the title was so unpopular that Fox had to threaten to withhold another movie later that summer that was more anticipated. The Other Side of Midnight. Theaters wouldn't get that one unless they also showed Star Wars. 20th Century Fox feared a flop. Mr. Spielberg's office. Hey, uh, there, it's, uh, it's George for Steve. Still weeks from release, George has lost all hope. He sees the writing on the wall. The epic sci-fi adventures Fox has been touting for two years is no more than a mediocre kids movie. Hey, buddy. Hey, Steve. Uh, listen, I know you're doing some rewrites, but I'm, I'm thinking about going to Hawaii opening weekend. You want to come? Hawaii? That's Memorial Day weekend? Yeah. Just get away from the press, you know? Count me in. It'll be good just to relax for a couple days. Yeah, great, great. There's uh, it's a good hotel on the, the big island. It's, it's perfect. Yeah, yeah, I'm in. Hey, George, what if the press is good? George couldn't find a way to tell Steven Star Wars was only getting a limited release. Well, uh, you know, I'm not sure it will be. They booked their tickets. When Star Wars arrived, they planned to be in a galaxy far, far away. 
in the final episode of Blockbuster. Maybe we ought to do something less complicated for the next project, you know? George and Steven escape the press on opening weekend. I've always wanted to do a James Bond picture. <laughs> where they forge a partnership that will change everything. Hey, you know, I think I have a story better than James Bond. Really? And word of mouth creates a new hope for Fox and Star Wars. George, that's your movie. What? Is it? Is that? That's your movie! That's coming up on the finale, episode six of Blockbuster. This season of Blockbuster took months to research, write, cast, record, sound design, and compose the original score. And we're constantly sharing our work, research, and pictures on social media. Plus, the latest news about Blockbuster, including this series winning Adweek's Podcast of the Year Award for Best Creative Podcast. Blockbuster will always remain free to listen, but your generous contributions can help my team, the creators of this series, keep making it. And as our special thanks for your $10 donation, you'll receive a link to the complete series ad-free, digitally mastered in the highest quality, so you can be truly immersed in the story. You'll also receive exclusive tracks from the original score by composers Ryan Taubert and Benjamin Botkin. Plus, we'll put your name in the official credits as a thank you for being part of our Blockbuster team. Just go to getblockbuster.com and click donate. Blockbuster is written and narrated by Matt Schrader, Sound design by Peter Bavietz. Original score by Ryan Taubert and Benjamin Botkin. Produced by Elena Bavietz. An original podcast series from Epic Left Media. Hey, this is Ryan Taubert, one of the composers of Blockbuster. Stay tuned for a short conversation about making this episode. But first, would you please take a quick moment to give us a five-star review and share this series with a friend. And for extras and exclusives, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram or visit getblockbuster.com. Thanks for listening to Blockbuster. This is Ryan Talbert, one of the composers of Blockbuster's original music. And this is Matt Schrader, creator and narrator of Blockbuster. Each week we are discussing a little piece of the creative process of making each episode. And today talking about a topic that's close to my heart. Sure. Incredible original score from Ryan Taubert and Benjamin Botkin. And Ryan is here. And Ryan, when we met making score a film music documentary, you came on as the composer of that film. And I remember you saying, oh, great. So I have to write music to follow up the greatest hits of Hans Zimmer. <laughs> what did you think when I asked you if you'd score a series well, featuring John Williams? <laughs> that has to be one of the maybe one of the most intimidating intimidating things that uh, projects a composer can agree to. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the best, the, I guess at the end of the day, I just figured, well, you know, I can only do my best. Uh, we just heard a, a very musical episode, and one of the things about John Williams' music specifically is there's so many themes and motifs that are layered, a lot of character themes, a lot mm -hmm. of that was something that we talked about early on, kind of having a motif-driven approach, a theme-driven approach, where each character had a theme. For me, it just started with um, understanding their story, mm -hmm. uh, understanding a little bit about their personalities. You know, I've just I, I sat down with the piano, and I tried to, I guess, walk in the shoes of these characters. Mm -hmm. I mean, or get into their personalities. The George Lucas theme, I wanted to go with something that felt something that almost has a childlike sense of fantasy in a way, but but also, an, I guess, an element of sophistication. 
a lot of times I just start with kind of humming something in my head. And if it's easy to hum, then I assume that it will be easy to orchestrate and sound good with the orchestra. You are one of the two composers who created the musical heartbeat here. And Benjamin Botkin, the other composer, really helped tap into the John Williams sound. For me, it's a feeling. Ah, There's almost a certain bounciness to the orchestration. There's a, a softer touch to certain things as opposed to going full rock and roll with the orchestra. Every musician feels like they're doing something important. They get to have their voice on certain moments rather than just kind of blending in the whole time. That's really um, interesting, yeah. Yeah, and then it creates a certain feeling. I, it feels like, yeah, every musician is playing something, a part that feels important for them and, and important to the whole piece. Now, Benjamin's based in Nashville. You're based here in Los Angeles. What was the working relationship like? It was very back and forth. Uh, it requires a lot of work to get that kind of sound. And he would, I would send stuff his way. He would change a few things around. Then he would send it back. I would change a few things around. Yeah, until until uh, it sounded like something that uh, suited the project and sounded convincing. Ryan Taubert, composer of Blockbuster, thanks for sitting down to chat. Thank you. No problem. Please remember to subscribe and leave us a five-star review to get all episodes of Blockbuster. Follow Blockbuster on social media for extra content and read our behind-the-scenes blog or visit our store at getblockbuster.com.